Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. I'm Dan Shapir, coming to you from Tel Aviv. And today on our panel, we have Steve Edwards. Hello from Portland. Amy Knight. Hello from Nashville. AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. Coming at you live from They Change Trash Day to Tuesday. Mm. And our special guest for today is Martin Splitt from Google. Hi, Martin. Hi there, and hello from Zurich, Switzerland. Oh, it must be a very nice weather over there right now. Yeah, it's actually sunny, warm, and blue sky, and not too bad, yeah. Surprisingly. And how's the temperature like? Uh, I think today we had 14 degrees centigrade. Mm, I think we'll need to maybe try to convert it for American. Nice and toasty. Yeah, I think in American units, it's 25.3 caterpillars in a nutshell or something. Yeah, well, what you do is you you divide by two and then multiply by five nights. Right. Sounds sounds legitimate. Plus, uh, plus 32. Don't forget the plus 32. You got to carry the 32. Uh, I think it's in the upper 50s for you guys. So well, where do the yeah. caterpillars in the nutshell fit in there? I missed that in the calculation. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I have no idea how the exact like there are coefficients there, and like you have to figure out the units, I guess. But I'm not a, I'm, I'm not really good at this stuff, so I don't know. It's either thirty nine or fifty seven, depending on whether it was supposed <laughs> to be five ninths or nine fifths. I, I'll tell you one thing. Whenever I need to convert Celsius to Fahrenheit or vice versa, I just use this thing called Google Search. Martin, have you heard about it? I heard about it. It's apparently like a really hot startup from the Mountain View area right now. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, Martin is actually involved with Google Search. Can you tell us your role there? <laughs> yes. So I'm a developer advocate at the Google Search Relations team. So my job is to both help everyone build websites that can be discovered through search engines, um, more specifically through Google search, and uh, also to, to basically bring back developer and SEO feedback to the relevant uh, product teams at Google, uh, in Google search more specifically, um, to make sure that Google search works the way it's supposed to do. And we brought Martin on our show to, tell, to explain to us exactly how the Google search algorithm works on the inside. Right, Martin? Yes, correct. That's exactly what I'm here for. This episode is brought to you by Dexsecure, a company that helps developers make websites load faster automatically. With Dexsecure, you no longer need to constantly chase new compression techniques. Let them do the work for you and focus on what you love doing, building products and features. Not only is Dexsecure easy to integrate, it makes your website 40% faster, increases website traffic, and better yet, your website running faster than your competitors. Visit Dexsecure.com slash JSJabber to learn more about how their products work. What's the latest name? <laughs> like caffeine or cocoa bear or juju? Oh, sauce? now now you're mixing up all the things. I think like the latest name is Bert. Uh, that has been, or is it, is it now passage indexing that people are like freaking out about? I don't know. Like there's, there's something new uh, every now and then popping up in the community. And then it's like, oh my God, the big update. And we're like, yeah, it's not really that big of an update but yeah um okay i guess i mean other than turning search results completely upside down sure not that big of an update 
It's like butterfly effect. One small tweak to the algorithm, and then all of a sudden your site can't be found anymore. You you say that, but then like if you look at it, the thing is there's like lots of websites and search results, right? And for many, an update doesn't change anything. And then for some, it changes quite a lot. And then for others, it changes positively. For others, it changes negatively. It's really hard to say like what's the impact in terms of like you can't summarize that as like, oh yeah, this this had lots of impact, or oh yeah, this had none of, of the impact whatsoever. And you see that quite interestingly when we talk about different things that happen in search. So for instance, a couple of years back, um, we felt that we should promote use of HTTPS, um, so SSL uh, or TLS in your in your website serving infrastructure. And that is a ranking factor. It's just one out of lots of them. So people were like, oh my God, we're going to see a big change if you're not using HTTPS. And then that wasn't the case. Except that for some websites, it did make, like if, if you are having competitors that are on HTTPS and are pretty much as good as you, and now you are the one who's the only one in that niche that is not actually supporting HTTPS, then you would see like, oh my God, we are losing... Uh, traffic and ranking here from search, whereas in other areas, people are like, yeah, no, we don't really get like that much of a ranking boost. And there might even be non-HTTPS websites outranking you. They're like, you told us that HTTPS is a ranking factor. Yes, it's one ranking factor. But if I have a really bad page that is on HTTPS, why would I outrank a really good page that just happens to not have HTTPS? So yeah, it's always wild and complicated. Uh I forget who said it, but I, I, it was a really nice explanation by some Googler who, who told me, maybe it was even you, who told me that Google tries to find for you the pages that you want to find. Yeah. Uh, and usually that's based on what the page contains, the content of the page yeah. and, and yeah. the authority of the page and, and whatnot. But, but literally... If if you know you would would have gone through the list of all the pages, you know obviously that's not possible. Google tries to put at the top the ones that you would have put at the top. Yeah, and that that can make a big difference between different users as well. So if I am searching for restaurant open right now, I'll very likely get very different results from you all because none of you is in Zurich and. I probably want a restaurant that is open right now in Zurich, not in Nashville or Portland or wherever else in the world, right? So ranking is a really complex monster of a machine. It is amazingly uh, fine-tuned. We are doing lots of experiments at any given time. And we are looking at if the outcome looks like what we want the outcome to look like in the sense of we have what's called uh, quality raters. Um, that's actual human beings who are presented with a search query and with with a set of search results. And then they are also presented with an alternative set of search results. And then they get to say, I think this is the better search result set, or I think this other thing is the better search result set. And that way we are also fine tuning our ranking infrastructure. Well, that sounds, uh, I guess the whole thing is just kind of scary actually. Well, it's not as scary as you'd think. Okay, let me let me bring up one specific scenario, okay? It seems to me that bots are taking over in that fake auto-generated content is getting higher priority than a real human content. And part of that is probably because there's like 10 to 20 times as much bot-generated content out there than human-generated content. But specifically, 
If you search best XYZ, you are not going to get a page where a human has had any input. It's like 99.999% of the time, the first 20 results on the Google page are all bot sites that are just like using GPT-3 on Amazon reviews and generating really crappy Amazon link farms. That's like my biggest problem with search right now is I can never find out any real information about a product because it's all just parroting what's in the description and I don't know what other stuff they use, but it's just like, I always get garbage results when I'm searching for products information and I have no idea how to fix it. I don't know. That's an interesting example, but uh, I would disagree that that's usually the case. So for instance, if I'm searching, I, I use search as well, right? I'm, I'm a searcher as everyone else is. And for many things like, I don't know, best vegan restaurant in Boston or I don't know, best price for this and that or best... I don't know, used car dealer, Zurich. I actually get pretty good useful results. I think it is a question of how intense the competition is. And I think especially in product search, that is a bit of a tricky situation because sometimes some products are just so specific that if you are searching for a very specific product name, then you are in a very small part of the internet to begin with. Like there is just not that much information. And then it is hard for automated systems, including our bot, to understand what is good content here. And if it's like everything looks the same, then that's really hard to say, like, which of the 10,000 pages that are pretty much the exact same should we rank higher or lower? If someone actually pays some attention to what people want and what people need and what query intention they're coming with, then there is potential to optimize for that and actually give human-generated content that ranks better. It's just that for very specific products, oftentimes no one does. And it well, doesn't... Like if, I, if I were to search best USB-C hub or best iPhone glass protector, or I mean, pretty much like anything the average consumer would would be buying, like mm -hmm. I always get mm -hmm. to these junk sites and and what I end up having to do is find some type of like person on youtube to explain it which is a little less than ideal because i don't want to watch it but that's that's surprising because if i search literally for best USB-C hub i get cnet laptop mac tech radar business insider new york times which i would suggest are not spam generated bad pages or so i hope i do hope that the new york times does not have like a terrible 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 page on the best USB-C hubs or business insider doesn't so, yes, there there are bad results in, in some cases, in which case that's something that we definitely are trying to improve constantly. Product search, that's a little tricky because there is only so much information. And then in that case, you can at least try to sidestep that by providing a little different in terms of search intent. So, for instance, you could ask for comparison of USB-C hubs 2021 where that might filter out a bunch of pages that are just like general product information rather than a specific review and, and comparison. So, of course, everyone is trying to game our algorithms all the time. And that's one of the challenges that we are constantly dealing with. And that's one specific reason for not giving out too much uh, information on the ranking algorithm, actually. A question about that, because, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, I kind of jokingly said that you would be explaining the algorithm. <laughs> 
which of course you won't and you can't. But my question is, theoretically, if you wanted to, could you? I mean, is it actually something that human beings can still understand? Or is it just like some huge AI machine learning monstrosity that nobody really has, no person has a total grasp of how it actually works? Mm, I would say... It's not a un non-understandable or black boxy kind of AI system. It is actually a, a collection of smaller, relatively understandable bits and pieces that are being mixed together and weighted to, to form a final ranking in the end. And uh, even though there is not one person that understands it all because just no one needs to do that, you can, if you really sit down and want to understand how everything works, you can totally do that. It's just, it's a little pointless because you might be more interested in your specific area of expertise. So for instance, if I'm a natural language ex processing or programming expert, then I might be looking more into that subsystem that tries to understand the relevance for a given topic and a given page. But you can totally look further and basically go like, oh, okay, so in this case, my or my system that I am controlling here gets this weight attached to it, and then uh, this other thing comes in as well with this other weight attached to it, and you can comprehend what's going on. It's not all machine learning. It's not all a black box. Oh, interesting. When I prepared for our conversation, one of the things that uh, I thought might be worthwhile for our listeners, especially uh, given that our listeners are generally JavaScript developers and are not necessarily mm -hmm. so familiar with this particular field, is maybe explaining some of the terminology that's common. And yeah. you know, like even the basic things, like what is SEO? What is a SERP? What is a slug? Or maybe some other terms yeah. that I'm detecting. Maybe yeah. we can do that. Sure. Actually, we do have an internal class that uh, Nooglers, so new Googlers are, are um, encouraged to sign up for and, and take, where we discuss how search works. We also have a public page that explains how search works on very high level. I do hope that we will eventually actually uh, make a video that explains it in a little more detail. But basically, I could give us a quick run through through the infrastructure. Basically, you make a website. That's fantastic. Eventually, this website somehow either gets linked to or you submit it to Google, which then starts the process where the crawler, which is basically an automated bot a program called Googlebot, makes an HTTP request to that URL that we found somewhere and then downloads the response. Then we analyze what's on the page. That's the that's the indexing step where we basically try to figure out, okay, so this website is about cats, but it's not just about cats. It's specifically about diets for cats and specifically about medical diets for cats with specific medical needs. And then that puts, like, basically files it in a database with lots of signals attached to it, like how old is the page and how, how recent has it been updated. Uh, how much information about each specific diet is there, cats, blah, 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 how many images might there be, how many pages link to it, how many pages does it link to. All this kind of stuff gets collected and, and stored in the index, which is basically a database. And then you go to google.com or you use the Google app on your phone or you use Google Assistant or you use Google uh, search through Assistant through your Google Home. Who cares? Basically, what you do is you phrase a query. 
So you are searching for something. So you ask us something. You might ask us for the best USB-C hub in 2021. You may ask us for the best vegan restaurant. Or you may say, my cat needs a low-sodium diet. What's What can I do to make that happen? Like low-sodium uh, recipes for cat food or cat food brands. And then what happens is that uh, this request gets passed into what we call the uh, fulfilling layer. The fulfilling layer is rewriting the query a little bit. So it tries to figure out like variations of the query. You don't necessarily have a full sentence. There might, if you do, there might be stoppers that don't mean anything. There might be typos. So we filter those out. A bunch of stuff happens there. And then basically it asks the uh, index for potential candidate documents and says like, okay, so which pages on the low sodium cat food brand do we have? And then a bunch of pages show up, probably millions or billions of pages or even more. And then each of these documents is looked at. We have, as I said, we have uh, collected lots of signals. One of them, for instance, being if it's HTTPS or not. The other being how recently it has been updated and so on and so forth. So it's like, oh, there's this very recent page that has lots of links coming to it and actually links to a bunch of relevant information as well. And it is an HTTPS search page. That's also great. It's in the right language because I don't think you want to read a German page to that specific query. You probably want an English page for this. And all these kind of factors come in together, are being weighted, and that way we get a sorted list of candidates. And then this sorted list of candidates is being served back to you as a search result page, in short, SRP or SERP. So sometimes you'll hear the term SERP, so search engine result page. That's the page of search results that you'll see. Each of these results can look very, very different. So the simplest one that you probably know is what we call the blue links. So you have a title, which is in blue. Below it in, in green is usually the URL or the, the breadcrumbs that navigate you through different sections of the page. Then you have a little text that describes a little bit what the page is about. That's what we call the snippet. You can control this to a certain degree by providing a meta description in your website that we can then use as a snippet. So that's the simplest search result we have. But we might also have, so if it's like a medical query, then maybe we have some medical information somewhere from Wikipedia or elsewhere that we might highlight on the right-hand side. So it's like, oh yeah, low-sodium cat food is being served to cats with suffering these medical conditions, blah, blah, blah. You might find images. You might find products if it's a shopping uh, result, resulted or uh, relevant query. There are also these uh, so-called rich results. So uh, if you look for like a low-sodium cat diet, for instance, you might actually find recipes that explain how to make your own cat food to serve cats with that specific need. Yes, In that case, you might... Yeah, you, you might actually have like, a, oh yeah, this recipe takes 20 minutes to prepare and has this many calories and uh, takes these ingredients. So there's like different kinds of, of search results. And yeah, that's, I think like SERP, so the search result page is an important term that you'll often hear. Snippet or meta description is a term you'll often hear. Blue link or simple results, rich results are things that are usually being thrown around. Rich results are powered by structured data. So for uh, enabling a rich result, you have to add a specific piece of JSON markup to your page to tell us what this page is about specifically. In this case, that's a recipe, for instance, and what the steps are and what the calories are and so on and so forth. Yeah, 
We had covered indexing, ranking, and crawling. Anything else? Anything you think is missing? The two, I mentioned two. First of all, SEO itself. All oh, right, yeah. And also uh, the term slug gets thrown oh, around. Oh, yeah. Place. Yeah, so, oh, God. SEO itself is search engine optimization. <laughs> I mean, so, we've gotten to the point where you're invoking deities uh, really early in our conversation. Yeah, no, you, you have like the slugs one is an interesting one, but I'll come to that in a moment. So SEO itself is the, the work of optimizing pages for, for search engines. That can be done well and not so well. Let's put it that way. So I, I before, think of... Before I, you delve into that, uh, maybe I'll lead into that with a really basic question. Okay, that's and fair. My basic question is like, why? I mean, we have HTML... Right which is a semantic representation of our content. Mm -hmm. uh, it contains all the content that I want to provide. It also describes certain sections of the content in, in like I said, a semantic way. This is the title, this is the header, this mm. is the list, this is a table, links, and so on. You know, given that, and given how well the browsers themselves, when I visit a web page, are able to present this data, and now, you know, the, this data is also available in an accessible way, hopefully, so that I can, mm. uh, you know, uh, whatever input output device best, work for, best works for me. Given all of that, why do I actually even need to do, to do SEO? Why isn't the HTML enough? That's a really good question. So search engine optimization should be about helping you optimize the site, the, the moment when search engines and users interact. So when users interact with search engines and search engines interact with your site, certain things happen. To give you an example, or make an analogy maybe, maybe I'll try that instead. So if you are thinking about building a website and you make all the HTML really fantastic, but it's a website about photography and all your pictures are really, really shoddy, like really low resolution, like 100 by 100 pixels. Is that a good photography website? Well, from the technical perspective, yeah, it's valid HTML. All the images have alt text. The images serve fantastically fast. They don't take that much bandwidth. They load really quickly. Awesome. But for the purpose that you're trying to make the website for, which is showing off your photography skills, it's terrible. Because if I want to see your pictures, I think I need more than 100 by 100 pixel resolution to actually see lots of the detail and how well you captured the light and how great the composition is. All these thumbnails, if that's all what you provide me, are not really going to do a good job in, in showing how great of a photographer you, you are. And... It's similar with, with any website you make. You are trying to serve a certain purpose, and you have to ask yourself, what is the purpose that I'm trying to save and as, to serve? And one beautiful example of that is recipes. If you want to share recipes for whatever purpose that might be, it might be just like the popularity, it might be people coming to your site and, and seeing uh, ads or because you are selling the ingredients or you're selling a recipe book or whatever, I don't know. But you want people to, to come to your website and read these recipes and be delighted by the recipe and try the recipe out and be happy with it and tell others about your website and maybe even like post on all sorts of social media about it so that even more people come and, and uh, cook your recipe, see your ads, buy your book, whatever it is. And that's often where people fall short. And it's not 
only a technical concern because obviously you you can make technical mistakes and then have problems because like oh yeah this recipe website actually doesn't show me anything on my mobile phone because it's broken in some very interesting specific way or oh this website is super slow i don't want to actually wait for this recipe so i'll go somewhere else so that's the technical uh, considerations there but then also if i come to the website and everything works on the technical side but then the recipe goes on for 5 screens on the life backstory or like the life background when i grew up in the south of france my mother used to like no no one cares like just tell us what is this why would i care for this recipe uh, and how do i make this actual thing and maybe illustrate it with a video or or with pictures or something and that's that's where seo comes in that's where seo starts and says like okay so what's the intention with which people are probably going to end up here like what what are you what are what's the interest that you are serving with this page and maybe this recipe is a real quick recipe for vegans so but if your entire recipe site never mentions that this is a quick recipe and this is a vegan recipe then how would google know so if it's like oh yeah there's this like cupcake recipe that's really brave, really great and it's like rainbow cupcakes like grandmother did them or something then this would not be something that would show up for quick vegan cupcakes even though it is a quick and vegan cupcake re recipe and then people might be like oh why are my customers not showing up on my site why is it that i have to like pay a lot for ads or even if i don't pay for ads like no one shows up this is not this is frustrating and then seos usually help you by saying like okay so what are you trying to convey well this is a really great vegan recipe blog for quick vegan recipes well then say so right and then search engines being bots not humans that actually like try out all the recipes they'll be like okay so this says a quick vegan recipe it has structured data that says it is a recipe and it's vegan and it also says that it only takes 5 minutes to prepare so that's great too and then like these things would benefit in highlighting and showcasing your work and your content in search engines and semantic html is not enough because that's just the foundation you have to be in html to begin with to to make it a website if it's semantic html that's even better because then we understand the semantics of it but that does still not uh, tell us if a visitor and far less so a bot an automated piece of software can actually understand what the website is about or if that that aligns with what you want it to be about right that's the other thing like okay so now we understand this is a recipe for cupcakes but how do we want to present this just as a recipe for cupcakes or a quick recipe for vegan cupcakes that's a very specific thing so that's why search engine optimization is necessary and it's not just that it's not just the content part it's also the technical part because you have to also understand google and other search engines have to make trade-offs if you are building a program you know that you pretty much make trade-offs all the time any decision you make and even which framework you're going with implies trade-offs yes of course you can i don't know use let's say like typescript with react that works that is totally possible but you could also just use angular where where Re uh, where typescript is like a given it's like a default configuration you don't have to but you can you can also decide differently and then like figure that one out yourself or like work with other people's work 
but Google search has to, or other search engines as well, have to make these trade-offs of like, on one hand, we want to download a bunch of stuff from your website as quickly as possible. So if you if you are a huge retailer, let's say, or like a newspaper with a bazillion articles, let's say like, okay, let's say you start a newspaper like 10 years ago, and now you have a website for the, your newspaper. You might even easily have 10 million articles about all sorts of stuff and current affairs. So we want to get all of your articles as quickly as possible because new articles will probably pop up relatively frequently and quickly and they are current affairs, so we want to see them quickly. At the same time, we don't want to make so many requests to your website that your server starts to break down. So we need to like slow down and pace ourselves a little bit. But now this is a, this is a trade-off. How much do we have to slow down? How quickly can we still go? And yeah, like, what is there something you can do? Yeah, there's something you can do. You can, for instance, tell us if there's like different variations of your website. Let's say like dub 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 dot newspaper dot example and newspaper dot example https dub 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 dot newspaper dot example and https newspaper dot example and maybe like dub dub dot https mobile dot newspaper dot example and all of these are different sites, but all of them show the same content, then you can tell us, oh, by the way, I would be interested in you just going to, I don't know, HTTPS, dub, 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 newspaper.example. All the others are just alternative versions of this URL, but it's the same content. So then you're telling us, oh, we don't actually need to download uh, all these three pages for mobile, dub, 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 and non, dub, dub, dub. You're telling us, okay, there's one that we actually uh, have to look at, and all the others are just duplicates. We figure that out ourselves, but why make us waste work when we could use just this one base URL and then basically just triple our throughput with URLs that actually make sense because they're unique content. And these kind of things are very specific requirements, very specific considerations that I would say most developers don't know about or don't care about. And that's not too bad because as long as you have an SEO that tells you when something goes wrong, you don't need to worry about this. If you don't have an SEO that helps you, you need to figure that out yourself. And then it's just one more consideration that you need to keep in mind. And there's like lots of these trade-offs and lots of these things that can potentially go wrong. Because if you ever had to interface with an API, you know that it might look easy on the surface, but there are all these edge cases and weirdnesses that any API has as an inherent characteristic of, of a computer system consuming something from another computer system. And that's exactly what happens in search engines. It's a computer system consuming your content. And yeah, that's why you need SEO. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. 
So if I'm listening to your explanation, I, I have a quick comment. So first mm-hmm. of all, it seems, it seems to me that part of the thing that the SEO does is actually make your website essentially better. I mean, yeah. if I'm thinking about that analogy that you gave with the recipe, and you know, it's probably beneficial that I mentioned that it's uh, for uh, vegans and that it's a five-minute recipe mm-hmm. for humans, not just for, mm-hmm. for a search box. So... And, and SEO can just help me organize the content in a way that yeah. makes it more accessible to bots, but also to people. So that, Absolutely. That, so that's like thought number one that occurs to me. And thought number two, it seems that uh, effectively you've kind of extended the API of the web, of the web server to browser API to accommodate for the fact that there's uh, an action. There's a machine on the on the other end, and some of the context and some of the assumptions, you know, can cannot be made automatically. Theoretically, like this, could have been a part of the standard of the web itself. You've effectively turned it into a standard by saying, "Well, Google, the biggest search engine, that's the way that we work," and you know, effectively made it a standard. Pretty much, yes. It's not just Google search. Uh, it's pretty much all the other search engines have the same design decisions to make and and it's an inherent characteristic of crawling the web i would say yeah cool so i got a few questions for you martin i'm going to jump in here sure i'm always a detail-oriented person so you were just talking about how you know we can tell you if that you know the different variations of the site whether it's a dub 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 versus non-dub dub dub https versus http etc mm-hmm. can you talk in some detail about how we tell you about those? Is it like robots.txt? Is it a sitemap? What are the best ways to communicate that sort of information to Googlebot? Absolutely. Yeah, very happy to, to answer that, Steve. And I think that's a, that's a good point. We, we do have a bunch of documentation available for this on developers.google.com slash search that has like lots of different bits and pieces that, that might clarify things like this. But very shortly, you have different ways of interacting with us. Uh, the very first and foremost crawling-related one is the robots.txt that you mentioned. So before a robot like Googlebot would make an HTTP request to your site, it would basically go to your site slash robots.txt. And it looks into that file to figure out, am I even, does the owner of this website even want me to make requests to this website? If so, fantastic, then that happens. Then a crawling request happens and and the, the content is then further on processed. You can very granularly say like, oh, I don't want this URL pattern or this folder or whatever to be crawled, and then you can exclude things from, from crawling in robots.txt. And you can do that for specific bots as well. So for instance, you might, I don't know, you might dis- disallow Googlebot from accessing certain files under or that are in, within the members area, for instance, and we wouldn't make HTTP requests to this. You have to be a little careful, though, because when there's one step that I kind of skipped over earlier, which at least Google Search does. I don't know about the other search engines, but I, as far as I am aware, other search engines do this as well, which is rendering, where we are basically opening the website in the browser to execute the JavaScript and get whatever content comes from the JavaScript or is generated or fetched by the JavaScript. And what I have seen in the past is that people are like, oh, we'll save on requests from Googlebot by disallowing our API. But then it's a client-side rendered application 
So basically, the website is, is pretty much empty in, in terms of the content that comes from the server. And then the JavaScript is executed in the browser, making a bunch of re uh, requests to the API. If you do that, then Googlebot will basically go through the crawler and check the robots.txt, see, oh, API is not allowed to be fetched. So we can't make HTTP requests to the API, which means the JavaScript gets an error, which means we are not seeing your content. So robots.txt is a very powerful weapon. On the other hand, it's not the almighty uh, gun for everything. Um, because if you prevent us from crawling something, that does not stop us from indexing it. That sounds weird and paradox, but if you think about it, there is a website somewhere on the internet that says, look at this high school photo from Martin Splitt, and then links to a photo on my website. Now, my website is blocked by robots.txt, which means Googlebot sees this other website, sees, oh, there's a link with the, with the context, uh, Martin Splitt's high school photo, and then tries to make a network request to that specific photo on my website, reads the robots.txt, says, okay, I can't actually... I can't go there because I'm not allowed, thanks to the robots.txt. So I don't know what is behind this link, but I know that there's probably a high school image of Martin Schmidt. So it doesn't have any information on the content there. It doesn't get many signals, but it can still put it in the index as like, I know someone says that there's a high school photo of Martin Schmidt. It won't usually rank very high, and in most cases, will never show up in search results. But if we don't have anything else that ranks well enough for Martin Schmidt High School photo, that thing might still come up. It might come up with just the URL or just the title Martin Schmidt's High School photo from the other URL that links to it. But it won't show a meta description or anything because we don't have that information. We haven't been able to actually crawl it on, and get any information about the page. It might even be a 404. Who knows? But it can still potentially show up as a low-quality search result if we don't have anything else to show in that scenario or nothing better to show in that scenario. If I want to prevent indexing, oh, I can totally do that. There are the so-called robots meta tags, which can be either a meta tag in your HTML or it can be an HTTP header. And in the robots meta tag, basically, when we make the HTTP request, and this is important because we have to make an HTTP request to read the header or the HTML that you have there, which means you don't block this page in robots.txt. You allow us to crawl it. We crawl it. We download it. We look at the meta robots tag, and then it says, do not index this. No index is the, the value that you put in. No index. And we'll say, oh, OK, so we, we can fetch this from your server. But then you tell us, please don't put this in the index. Then we will not put it in the index. That's what we'll will do. We stop right there. We stop processing right at that moment when you say no index, and it will not show up in search results. So that's one thing that you can do as a developer. Manage your, your site both through the lens of robots.txt and also of the robots meta tag. Then I said like there's the different variations, like multiple URLs pointing at the same content. That would be another HTML tag that you can use, the link relation canonical. So you know you link your uh, CSS style sheets with link rel style sheet. In this case, you would have a link rel canonical where you tell us this URL for this page is what we think is the URL that we care about. If you come here from another URL, you can disregard that URL. We think it should be this one. Oftentimes, people use this incorrectly, which either leads to weird issues uh, with some pages not showing up in search results afterwards, or 
us ignoring that link rail canonical. So we take that as a hint, as a signal, but we might choose a different URL as a canonical. That sometimes leads to weird situations. For instance, if you have, let's let's say, so there's, there's this fantastic phenomenon that in Germany, Switzerland, and Austria, German is spoken. So you sometimes see the situation that a website in Germany, for instance, says, oh, we have this product here for 20 euros, and then Switzerland has the same product for 35 francs. So the only difference in these two pages is the price. But to the company in Germany, it's probably very important that we are showing the, the German and the Swiss version, which we will do. But the way that this works is that we say, oh, these are the same, same page. But then to users in Switzerland, we'll probably show the CH version because we understand, aha, so this is the Swiss version of the same page. And users in Germany will be shown the, the German version from DE, from, from Germany. Even though it's the same page, we kind of make the connection that there's like different language versions. If you have such a situation that you have different language versions of the same content, you can even tell us with a link relation hreflang, you can tell us, oh yeah, so there's like the Spanish version of this page is here, the English version of the page is here, the Argen uh, no, Argentinian version, no, fair enough, maybe the Arabic version, that's what I wanted to say, Arabic version of the page is here, the Hebrew version of the page is here, the German version of the page is there, uh, and that way we can also figure out which language versions we would show something in. So if, if someone from Israel would re request something, uh, we might show the Hebrew version if they have their device and their browser and their Google uh, search settings uh, pointing to Hebrew instead of English, even though the query might be English. That's, that's something that you can do. Yeah, so canonical tags, title tags was already mentioned by Dan, have a good title that actually describes what's on the page. So not if you have like an e-commerce store, it should just always say like Martin's e-commerce store on every page. You should have a title that describes each product and each category and each description, whatever article, whatever you're putting on your website. A meta description, meta name description with like a small snippet that can potentially show up in search results is useful. Yeah. Uh, another one that I think has become very much a best practice is the no follow attribute. No. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. I know exactly what you mean. That, yeah, aha, best practice. So, I I hinted at this earlier, and I think it's probably one of the most popular patterns when it comes to Google is probably the page rank patent. What made Google different from other search engines in 1999 or 1997, I think, when it started, was that we didn't just have a catalog of keywords, but we also evaluated pages based on how well linked they were. As in, like, if a page is good, the hypothesis is if a page is good, lots of other pages will link to it as a reference material, kind of. That came out to be the page rank system that has since been improved. We're not really using PageRank. We're using something similar in ranking as well. It's not the number one ranking thing, but it's a ranking factor. And the problem there is that, obviously, when that came out, people were like, aha, so I'll just make 100 spam bullshit websites and all of them have, uh, have all of them linked to, um, to this website that I want to rank. And then uh, Google will see like, oh, 100 websites linked to this, so it must be good. 
so we are taking site quality into account when that comes. So it's like, okay, so now you have created 100 bullshit pages, but they're not linked to uh, from anywhere. And Or maybe there's like a cluster of 100 bullshit pages that are linking to each other, but nothing else links to them. So we are basically building what's called a link graph all over the web so that we understand certain clusters of topics and certain like relations between different pages. And that's not just between different sites, that's also within your own site. So like, what's the what's the information architecture looking like on your site? Like wh which pages are linking where? Do these things mean that like, if I'm searching for this, not only this page is relevant, but also this other page might be relevant. And a bunch of spammers are still trying to like play that system by offering basically paid links. So we are hunting down link abuse basically or link spam by looking at if the link looks like it's an organic link. So like someone said like, oh yeah, I think this makes sense in this context. I'll link to that other page or if it's spam. And oftentimes spam happens when you have like, I don't know, a blog with comments. So you have a comment form and people will like post links to their, to their websites there. And uh, in the hopes that we think that these organic links, we are pretty good at filtering these out, but we can potentially get the feeling that your website is being primarily used as a link dump for other websites. So we might not feel so happy about your website being uh, involved in this, right? To avoid that, you can say on every link that you have on your page, you have the opportunity to set a relations uh, attribute, so a rel attribute. And if you know that the link comes from a user comment, you can always add the, the link relation uh, nofollow which means you're saying like, I don't really trust this link. I don't know what is behind this link. I haven't specifically curated this. This is not an organic link. This is something else. We have recently introduced other uh, attributes there as well, or attribute values there as well. So you can give us a little more information on why you don't trust the, the, the link. So for instance, you can say UGC for user-generated content. So the comments example would be, a user on your website, so not you, the owner of the website, but a user on your website posted that link. You don't know if it's good. You don't vouch for its quality. So you can say, this is a user-generated link. Don't consider this, please, because it's a user-generated link. You shouldn't do that on all the links because that way you also kind of undermine the idea of having a healthy link graph. And I think distrusting all the links that you put out there by default is not a good practice either. I think it makes sense for all the links that you don't really have control over or where you don't know if they are any good. But for anything that you, for if you write a blog post about something and you really like that something that you blog about, link to them. There's no harm in linking to them. That's an organic link. You liked it, you put it in, organic, all fine. If, however, you are like posting 100 posts a day that are mostly just linking out to one page, then that's maybe questionable. But yeah, so. Yeah, no follow is an is an important tool, but don't overuse it. So I want to come back to the canonical tag, and just to give you a little background, I had a few months ago spun up a little blog site, and I'm using statically generated sites. So, you know, from SEO standpoint, that should be really good because you're not having mm -hmm. to query an API. It's all you know right there, obviously. But one of the issues that I keep running into on my Google Search Console is under coverage errors, I get alternate page with proper canonical tag, even though I have a canonical tag in every post. It's a it's, you know, blog site post. So is a canonical link 
something you want in every post that would like point to itself? Or is should that only be put when your your source of truth is actually at another URL? So with, with Google Search Console, that's a tricky one because the the way that Google Search Console works is that it warns you or, or informs you about things that are potentially not what you want, but they don't necessarily mean that they are a problem. So in the end, if you, brilliant example for static uh, sites, depending on how your static site generator works, for instance, with Google, which I use for some of mine, oftentimes I have a folder and then an index.html file. So I can get to the same post with a trailing slash and without a trailing slash. Now, Google has the problem that it might see both URLs somehow. Might some, someone might link to it with a trailing slash, a slash. Someone might remove the trailing slash. And then it sees both versions. And then it de determines, OK, so one of them is a duplicate of the other. And now it has to pick. And what can happen is that it sometimes picks one, sometimes picks the other, which looks really weird in reporting, because that basically just means that certain pages come in and out of, of search results, which is not really what happens. But that's that's how it looks like in, in, in the reporting, at least. Yeah, and, and it, that's not generally a problem, especially if it's a small blog. Uh, I would say like every, everyone with less than a million pages on their site is, is not really concerned with crawl budget or anything. If you're a really large site, that is actually a real problem. That's something that you definitely need to look into. So you can specify a canonical if you want on every blog post that points to the trading slash version, the non-trading slash version, the HTTPS version, the non-dub-dub-dub version, whatever it is, just like make it consistent. Or alternatively, you just leave it out and say like, that's not a problem. And that's also okay. This episode is sponsored by Sentry. Sentry is the thing that I put into all of my apps first thing. I figure out how to deploy them. I get them up on the web and then I run Sentry on them. And the reason why is because I need to know what's going on in my app all the time. The other thing is, is that sometimes I miss stuff. I'll run things in development, works on my machine. We've all been there, right? And then it gets up into the cloud or up on a server and stuff happens, stuff breaks. I didn't configure it right. AWS credentials, something like that, right? And so I need to get the error reporting back. But the other thing is, and this is something that my users typically don't give me information on, is I need to know if it's performing well, right? I need to know if it's slowing down because I don't want them getting lost into the Twitterverse because my app isn't fast enough. So I put Sentry in, I get all of the information about what's going right and what's going wrong, and then I can go in and I can fix the issues right away. So if you have an app that's running slow, you have an app that's having errors, you have an app that you're just getting started with, Go check it out, sentry.io slash four, that's F-O-R slash JavaScript, and use the code JSJabber for three months of their base team plan. Okay, so uh, that, I'll push us to picks. Steve, let's start with you then. What did, did you come up with a pick for today? Yeah, I think I did. So I'm going to go TV show again, and it's one that I watched quite a bit when it was on and went away for a while, and now it's come back on one of the various cable channels that I have. And I don't think I picked it before. If I have, I'm sorry. But it was called, uh, it was on initially a cable-only show when those first started coming around, as compared to everything being initially on the networks. But it was called In Plain Sight. It's a show that takes place in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and it's about a couple uh, U.S. federal marshals that are in charge uh, or are part of the Witness Protection Program, which is where you know, the government puts witnesses that 
have testified for them against really dangerous people and dangerous people want to kill them. So they're trying to protect them. And it's, uh, it was written, produced and written mostly by the lead uh, actress named Mary McCormick. But just one of those shows that I really got into. I think it has seven or eight seasons and ended six or seven years ago. Again, I don't have the dates, but uh, in plain sight, really, really good show. Really uh, fun to watch. Cool. AJ, how about you? Usually, you usually have lots of excellent picks. All right. Well, today is no exception. I'm going to pick the Randall Monroe book trilogy that's not really a trilogy because they're not related, but What If, How To, and Thing Explainer. Randall Monroe is the XKCD guy, and, you know, he's just funny. He's, he's quippy and witty, and the, he's got these books, which you should get in hardcover versions so that you can keep them forever and ever in your collection and uh, keep them prominently on display for your guests or, or put them in your office waiting room. And it's just like absurd absurd explanations of things like an overly detailed explanation of buried pirate treasure and the economics of it and if you can jump out of a plane with a helium tank and realistically be able to fill enough balloons with helium before you hit the ground to slow your descent which apparently you can (laughs) and and the thing the thing explainer is Don't, don't forget to drop the tank though what <laughs> you fill all the balloons? I, yeah, I, th- I don't know exactly how it works, but I think you got to have those big, big balloons and, you know, release no, but the you need to drop and... the tank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you got to, yeah, of course. I'm sure. I'm sure that's really important. Yeah, um, it's really important. And, and then Thing Explainer is using only 1000 words. Uh, he explains the world's most complex topics, such as nuclear fission. So it's basically using words that a second or third grader would know. So the 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 uh, international space boat, for example, <laughs> stuff like that. So picking that, I'm also gonna pick. We were talking about the NSA, and there's this nice little route between the NSA building and the Microsoft building. It's not that much different between the Oracle building or the whatever big company you want to name, Adobe <laughs> building, etc. Because all of those buildings are right there together. But yeah, so I mean, I, blah, blah, blah. anyway, uh, just for fun, there's the, the Google Maps link to see that. I am a little bit worried about big tech invading Utah, though. I mean, it's been doing it for years and years. It's, you know, Utah's always been a tech hub since the 80s or 70s or whatever it was. But I'm I'm a little bit concerned with how things are changing around here, and it's starting to feel a little too much like San Francisco. A lot more mm, uh, the things I don't like. Anyway, but interesting just to kind of see how close those those things are together. The the tech hub and the NSA data center, and then uh, I'm also uh, see no, I'm not going to pick that. Okay, last thing I'm going to pick is there's this nice video. that's a parody of a user focus group, which isn't like that far off because you have to do focus groups right otherwise you get bad answers from your respondents but i just thought of it as like the perfect explanation of traditional 1970s run-of-the-mill public key cryptography and uh, blockchain technology that's that's what i came to in my mind but it's it's a user study of cavemen it's like a one minute clip of cavemen discovering the wheel and and their feedback on what they should do with it and and i just thought it was hilarious and it's like oh that's like that's like what they did to cryptography to come up with the idea of the blockchain excellent 
So those are the things that I am gonna leave you with some links to to check out. That is all. Um, okay, so I only have one pick for today. It's a pick about our very own Amy Knight, who unfortunately had to drop off before this section because of uh, work stuff, who would have thought. So uh, one thing that I really like that Wix Engineering, the company that I work at does, is that we organize a lot of uh, technical meetups and share a lot of useful content. And then uh, usually the videos for these meetups uh, go online and you can find them on, on YouTube in the Wix Engineering Tech Talks uh, channel. Uh, and recently we had a meetup where our very own Amy Knight spoke. And she spoke about the technicalities of CSS, uh, you know, how CSS actually works inside the browser, how it combines with uh, the HTML, uh, the DOM, to actually form the, the visual representation of the page, how to debug uh, uh, CSS, and so on and so forth. A really excellent talk, obviously, because it's Amy. So I'm going to link to that, and that will be my, that will be my, my pick for today. So with that, we'll go over to you, Martin. Do you have any picks for us? Yes, I actually do. I usually fall into all sorts of weird rabbit holes on the internet. And I, I, I come up with random. I find them. I, yeah, it's, it's wild. <laughs> it's actually, actually not Google interestingly enough. So uh, I'll pick an interesting article about the curious tale of Tegel, as in Berlin Tegel's old airport. Tegel's Boeing 707, where they recapitulate the history of a Boeing 707 um, that was standing around in one of the more remote areas of Tegel Airport in Berlin and how it got there and what happened there and like a bunch of backstory uh, about like plane hijacking and stuff. So yeah, it's it's quite a ride, but it's quite an interesting one, I think. Then I'm also picking a fantastic article that covers a thing that happened in Belgium. So apparently a bunch of mutant crayfish, as in like genetically ma uh, manipulated uh, female crayfish, escaped a facility in Belgium and are now like proliferating themselves and like living a happy life on a Belgian cemetery, which I think is such a bizarre story, but I love that it's true and it's actually happening. And I'm like, oh my God, this is fantastic crayfish. Over I, for one, welcome our crayfish overlords. And last but not least, because I feel compelled about like sharing something useful as well, I think that technical writing is tricky and important to get right, and it's a useful skill. And I haven't really seen like much in terms of how to self-educate yourself about it. I work with fantastic tech writers like Lizzie Harvey on our team is an amazing tech writer. But I wanted to brush up my skills a little bit, and I found, uh, or actually was pointed to this by Marie Schweitzer, I think, pointed me to an article from the Duke Graduate School or Duke University Graduate School on scientific writing. And it explains like why it's important, how you can uh, get better at it, what's, what's making a communication effective and like basically walks you through a bunch of lessons. Uh, I think it's three lessons on how to write better. Excellent. So Martin, I want to thank you very, very much for coming on our show. It's a lot of amazing content that you've provided us with. I think this is really wasn't really excellent show, if I may say so myself. And with that, we conclude another episode of uh, JavaScript Jabber. So thank you to our listeners. Bye-bye. Adios. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.